0: Took a while through this beautiful world Felt the cool rain on my shoulder
1: Hello and welcome to Chats in a Pickle, the preeminent podcast where we cover non-struck work with a focus on comedy and criticism. I am Alan Ibrahim, and I'm joined by my head chef, Majon Fluke. Welcome to the show. We chef. We chef. We chef. It's it's a part at the end where in the book that we're going to be discussing where he says like tips if you want if you for some reason want to be a chef after reading this book. And he's uh-huh. like, Number one, learn Spanish. <laughs> you <laughs> you are gonna need to know Spanish. It's a useful skill when you're becoming a chef. Um, how are you? What's going on? Like, what's your life like right now? <laughs> Just, like, talk to me. Talk to me. Uh, I'm feeling,
0: I'm feeling good. I've been playing lots of Baldur's Gate three. That you know, we Still? talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's a great game. It's a really good game I, I hit 20 hours on my main character and I'm um, kind of like, well, I could go to Act two or I could start like two other characters who have different <laughs> ways of viewing and interacting with the world and it's been pretty fun to do that. and the school year's begun and it's going well so things are things are solid. What about you? How are you doing?
1: Things are plasma, bro. Do me, do me a plasma. You know how people used to say that, like, do me a, instead of like do me a solid.
0: By people, do you mean like us?
1: <laughs> yeah, I do mean us. Uh-huh. It's like when I tell my John off pod, I'm like, oh, people are gonna be so mad about this thing on the podcast, and you're like, by people, do you mean the voices inside of your head that tell you that you're not good enough? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're mean and they're always annoyed at uh-huh. everything we do. Um, yeah, I'm doing all right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to a rave this Saturday. Isn't that weird? Oh, you know where I'm going? I'm going to a Ren fair this Saturday. We're living two sides of the same life. Uh, <laughs>
0: pretty much. I mean, what, what what's the tangible difference between a rave and a Ren
1: fair, really? Oh, that's poetic. I mean, you're going to get a turkey leg
0: at both, right?
1: Oh, you yeah, know I mean? If you know what I mean. Well, here's here's Google search what to do at a rave. Number one, they dance. You can dance at a run fair. Number two, Easy. enjoy the music and the performance. Run fair. Yep. yep. Number three, Check. stick with your friends.
0: Yes, <laughs> you better. Otherwise, you're no. gonna
1: make some new ones. Number four, make some new ones.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, you could do that too. No. Number, Number five, five the they move area. around the different rooms. <laughs> they move around the different rooms. Yeah, you you do that in a sense. You go between the blacksmith and the haberda- haberdashery and the jousting
1: arena. the instruments guy yeah and where all the tigers are or whatever number six partaking a glow performance i thought this is not going to be that kind it's an anime rave it's an anime themed rave
0: oh i mean the like the fire eating uh shows are kind of a glow performance
1: oh that's true i remember the. i remember the uh the globe the fire eating uh, get high you could. You could totally go yeah, to fair and I'm sure many
0: do. I'm sure many do. I choose to get high on life and fiction, Aww. the fiction
1: of it all. Yeah. Enjoy the vibe. I think I'll be doing yeah. the same. So we are truly uh, doing the same thing in two different ways. Yeah. Uh, but I'm looking forward to that. I have some fun stuff going on this weekend besides that that I can't talk about on the podcast. Oh. <sighs> I had...
0: Two different segues. That is fun. I had two different segues come into my mind. Probably one both? of them
1: was doing drugs.
0: No, no, no. Well, okay. I mean, <laughs> that, yeah, but no. One of them was when you're talking about the voices in your head, and I was going to be like, well, I had a voice in my head this uh-huh. week that so was actually rather pleasant. Segue number one. Uh-huh. Segue number two. uh This is like the Baldur's Gate uh, dialogue options, and this one's only available to you if you're a cleric or something. Uh-huh. Uh, was you said we did we're doing the same thing in two different ways, uh-huh. and I was going to say, well, there was another thing we did the same two different ways this week, what which is we, we consumed yeah. a pickle. Oh, we did, did you get
1: any pickles this week? We people ask to mention we have to have a pickle update, real quick.
0: Um, I think I had like a spear like a piece of a spear with a sandwich or something like that.
1: Why am I not running into pickles <sighs> in my day-to-day life? Oh, I, I have one. Sorry. Go ahead. Finish yours.
0: When you were here, I think this was before our last recording, but when you were here visiting and we went mm-hmm. to that diner, I got a BLT that came with a pickle, I think.
1: Okay. I think reaching, That was pickle. the last,
0: the last pickle I had.
1: So, I didn't have a pickle this past week, but last Friday we had a going away party at a like mini golf slash bar situation.
0: Oh and that sounds like a nice situation,
1: yeah, Boston's really big on like it's a it's a really low impact sport, but you're allowed to drink golf plus drinking, <laughs> mini golf plus drinking, ping pong plus drinking these are uh-huh. all huge and uh they had these margaritas that had a frozen jalapeno in your margarita, so like instead oh. of ice, you just had a frozen jalapeno pepper. <laughs> and Whoa. it reminded me of a pickle. That's the closest thing I got. That's cool. Yeah, Margaritas, he's...
0: by the way, RIP Jimmy
1: Buffett. RIP Jimmy Buffett. He's floating away in Margaritaville, and I'm happy for him. I'll never forget the last time we were in Times Square together, and we walked by, and we were like, is that a fucking Margaritaville in Times Square? <laughs> um, yeah.
0: Also, RIP to... Um...
1: Fuck, I thought I could find this guy. Steve name Harwell. Pastor. Steve Harwell, Smash Mouth guy. Lead singer of Smash Mouth. Uh, I honestly, a it re- seemed like a really cool dude, very like progressive dude. Uh great singer, made a lot of people happy. Sad to hear it died very young. We're gonna talk. About, I, I I'm gonna be honest with you guys. Yeah, <laughs> third segue option. <laughs> Here it is. We're gonna we have to talk about death this week. Mm. Uh it's just gonna come up. So if that's something that makes you all sensitive. I encourage you to turn the podcast off because it's going to be coming up because we are talking about one of my favorite human beings to live at the same time as us. It's Anthony Bourdain and specifically his seminal autobiographical novel Kitchen Confidential, uh, which we both read for my pickle this week. Uh, So to set things up, if you're not familiar, Anthony Bourdain was an American chef, author, documentarian uh, who did a bunch of television in the later half of his life. And in the first half of his life, he was a chef. You know, he uh, was a self-identified sensualist. He grew up with like foodie parents and developed a taste for food and learned how to cook at a young age and uh, got involved with a lot of drugs while uh, early on in his cooking career. And uh, from there jumped between a lot of high intensity uh, kitchens around New York city, primarily. And, Again, in the back half of his life, he got into doing that, but across the entire world and learning about and exploring food and culture and life in a way that left a mark on millions and millions of people. Uh, You know, his face is very recognizable. Uh, In the 2000s, he was that, like, bad... He he created the... He was the persona of the bad boy chef, I'd say, Um, mainly because of this book. And he's gone on to inspire a million you know chefs youtubers television creators writers uh his unique voice and style and cadence is unforgettable and uh he unfortunately um uh died in 2018 uh he he committed suicide uh at the age of 61 in France and uh as i said left a mark you know and we haven't forgotten to this day i still think about his words and his his coverage of different cultures all the time. Um, I picked this pickle. Because. A. I've been wanting to finish the book for a while. Kitchen Confidential. I have, I've I've picked at it for years. It's a book that you can definitely kind of like nibble at. Which we'll discuss. Um, but it is also. Seminal. In, in terms of like food writing. And so I wanted to finish it and get a sense for like. Where does this whole story go? What is he trying to communicate? Because I didn't realize until. This most recent read that the book came out in two thousand I always seem to assume that it came out in the 2010s because uh it got a second printing when he died and that's when I read it was twenty eighteen uh initially um so I was like reading it and realizing how much cooking culture has changed since the 2000s and I think from what I've read not to ever make assumptions about why somebody does the things that they do in life it seems like that was where a lot of his like depression and anxiety came from in the back half of his life was that kitchen kitchens and kitchen culture, cooking culture just isn't the same as it was. And uh yeah, due to another a number of other factors, we end up where we are today. Um but yeah, he really meant a lot to me. And I wanted to come out and say that because like I watched those shows and I'm not gonna be talking about them because they are struck work, but like Bourdain went to the Middle East and talked about it in a way that I never saw other Cooks do now no other no t v hosts would go to the middle east and and like talk about my family's culture and food and the people and the smells and the senses the way that Bourdain would with a again a genuine reverence and interest in not only tasting and exploring their cuisine but also like learning how to make it and learning how how why it's made and the sort of like conditions that make it um so that's my that's my long winded uh Wide up for this discussion, I guess. I'm curious, Magellan. Did you have any like big familiarity with Anthony Bourdain before reading Kitchen Confidential for this?
0: Um, first of all, I mean it's cool to hear your perspective on that. So I appreciated you sharing that and why this uh, this was your pickle. Um, uh I don't think. I mean, I'm sure I've seen Anthony Bourdain on TV a couple times. Um, because I've watched enough like restaurant and food related television and food network and, you know, random stuff and episodes of hell's kitchen and things like that, that somewhere, somehow I must have seen something, but, uh, I definitely knew who he was at the time that he passed away, but I, I didn't have like a, you know, a deep personal connection, but, um, in listening to this book I listened to the audiobook version that he narrates which I would recommend um and we can highly recommend that. for folks we yeah. we can talk about that experience in a minute but uh my connection to this was more on a personal level because my dad is a cook and um right. and it was a way to kind of like get some insight into my dad's experiences like as a sous chef and as a line cook and as a dishwasher and like all the different kind of roles and things that he's played in different contexts and different places in his life. And, uh, it, the like stories in the book felt very familiar to me because I could see how like the experiences that Anthony Bourdain lived through were at least like rhyming with, the experiences that that my dad has experienced, and uh mm-hmm. he was like a similar age to my dad. He was born in the fifties, which mm-hmm. is the same as my dad, so there's also kind of like a coming up and becoming a chef around the same time in the world. Um, yeah, so not a not a connection to Anthony Bourdain per se, but rather to like what he represents
1: in this book. Mm-hmm. that's that's really great because i i i forgot that your your father uh is a is a chef is or was is still doing that uh well uh, he still works in kitchens
0: and stuff but i kind of want to talk about that when we talk about some of the themes that come okay. up in the book to be more explicit about that
1: yeah okay great but um yeah it's it it just it, it's a little hard and i was telling the before the recording like it's a little hard talking about Bourdain because Uh, his struggles with mental health and addiction like ring true with a lot of people that I know and he meant a lot to me. And so when I heard that news in June of 2018, it was like a really big hit uh, to my life. Um, And so I'm just excited to be finally getting to talk about this book with someone else. It's like a thing that's been kind of personal for a while, Um, but I want to get into it. So yeah, like I said, Kitchen Confidential published in 2000 this was sort of his big break while working at a, a kitchen in New York. Um, I was watching a clip of, uh, of of him at the time. There's a lot of good footage, actually, from the year 2000 when this book was published. And somebody asked him, like, hey, so were you fired, like, immediately? And he was like, actually, they were, like, fine with it at first because the uh, the boss there, like, the manager of the ki- the restaurant, like, didn't care. And then once he, like, actually read it, he, like, had a stern talking, and then eventually, yeah, he did leave. And Uh it is such a bummer if you read about all the restaurants that he references in this book, and you're like, I would love to go there. They're, like, all closed. Like, there is not a single hint of any of the restaurants that Bourdain worked at in in this book that are still open today. Which, again, big reason why, you know, cooking culture has changed. (laughs) it makes me sad but um the book is is really entertaining so like if you haven't read or seen any of like bourdain's writing before he has this style of describing things that's very like uh sensual he identifies early on in the book as a sensualist he talks about like smells and sounds and words and he loves doing accents he's obsessed with culture and language um in that like fun right away people often compared him to hunter s thompson in that way uh, which I think is accurate and leads into another point i'm gonna make later um and you know especially early on, you get it you you learn about like what inspired his love of food that that beautiful story at the beginning of the book about trying cold s- soup for the first time and realizing it was cold, and then that was the point, and it was really good, and how that like changed the way he thought about things is like such a classic beginning of books tale did you did you enjoy these early goings like the whole Reading Tintin and all that stuff.
0: Uh, yeah, it was really, it was really charming. Uh, and also fun that he called it Tonton, and he's like doing the, the the French pronunciation. Um, but yeah, he he manages to make <laughs> essentially the story of like my seemingly well off parents took me on a very expensive trip through france and we ate fancy food and he makes that sound like this real rough and tumble salt of the earth like i'm a everyman kind of um kind of experience and uh mm. i was really charmed by it i i loved his description of eating the vichyssoise and being like oh, i've never had a cold soup before right. uh like that's such a visceral image uh and so telling that like the thing because what what ended up striking me about the book and the way that he talks about food and we had some like listener comments or questions about this um which we'll directly address yeah. later yep. um but the way that he talks about food is very process oriented it's very much about like what goes into creating the final product as opposed to the product itself and it's so telling that like this eye-opening food experience for him was not like i had a delicious soup it was i had a soup that was prepared in a way that i didn't realize could be possible for soup like i'd never had a soup of this temperature before right um and that's such a chef nerd food nerd thing (laughs) to be like oh my god i've discovered my life's passion you can make stuff in different ways (laughs) wow incredible Um, yeah and then i also really love the anecdote that follows where his (laughs) his uh a lot of his um kind of formative moments in the first couple chapters come from a deeply ingrained pettiness and a desire to like prove people wrong or screw people over or whatever and it was really funny to me that he was mad that he'd been left in the car while his parents went to have a really fancy dinner so he decided that he was going to become the real foodie and actually be the most adventurous eater in the family and his triumph was having this like fresh clam right off the lake bed in front of everybody while they're all like ew gross and those two anecdotes and dishes say so much not about like Anthony Bourdain's palate but like his spiritual relationship with the way in which food comes to be the way that it is and like the position that food has within social interactions or cultural context and uh yeah i just think that both of those anecdotes say a heck of a lot about like the character that you're gonna follow throughout the rest of the book
1: yeah he's he's got that sort of again it it can be simplified down to just saying he was like a rebel he really liked the ramones for example he was like a punk rock guy uh -hmm. you see old photos of him from the 80s and 90s and he's got like long greasy hair like Mm -hmm. that was always bourdain right and and What's fascinating is is like when I remember reading about this book before he passed there he was a polarizing figure one of the mm-hmm. one of my like good friends reviewed Kitchen Confidential like 10 plus years ago on Goodreads and he was like I love the book but God damn it is bourdain so fucking full of himself and I was like oh, like the you know when people pass mm-hmm. away we tend to view their work differently and it's just interesting seeing someone when he's alive being like no I don't actually like this this is annoying and so mm-hmm. i i totally if somebody hears this pickle and they're like i gotta pick up uh kitchen confidential and you'd hate it i totally get that he is a bit of a like asshole and uh uh a misanthrope but uh mm-hmm. it's charming and he's like i said the blueprint for that like a lot of people have gone on to try and be that and he's he really just was that sincerely because from a young age he he wanted to try things and essentialism yeah, is something i've thought a lot about i i actually in reading about it remembered do you remember in 2019 uh right after i got laid off i read <laughs> uh-huh. um the da- the daily stoic for a year which is a book yeah you, you... i do remember that yeah i realized that that was like literally the week after i got fired i started reading that book and uh which is hilarious but that that talks about sensualism and how like oh it's so important to like feel things as much as you can and I have definitely, like, taken on those words and those ideas that he even talks about in this book of, like, uh-huh. maybe it's weird. Maybe it's dangerous for me. Maybe it's unsafe. But, like, I'm going to do it because, like, uh-huh. that's the point of life is you just sample things. And uh-huh. that let, bled into eventually his, like, television work, which is why I like so much of that stuff. But, uh, yeah, essentialism also has its problems, too, right? Like, he talks so much a lot, actually, especially in the back half of the book about his drug use. He had a heroin right. addiction for a long time. He would tell his like chef, his like cooking people at his restaurant, like go buy me cigarettes, like during rush hour. And like mm-hmm. talks a lot about like, you know, you never, you. he's very much a like do the work, you know, focus on doing the work. And not like, if I have to stay up for 25 hours to do mm-hmm. it, then I don't care. And sometimes that would require the use of stimulants. So it's kind of hard to avoid ta- thinking about or mentioning uh, yeah, I think, like I said, a lot of people also saw this early stuff of his in their family and friends. Um, the first comment that uh-huh. we got actually was from listener Old As Your Omens, um, just talking about this kind of stuff we're talking about, which is Bourdain was such an odd reflection of my parents, says Omens, my family and my life traveling with them as a kid, alcoholism included. That my entire family, but especially me and the other cousins, found a perverse sort of comfort in Bourdain. He was like if my dad or my uncle got famous while still a chef and got a TV show. Uh his other shows on a massive scale were like a TV fied version of the, her her family's life cooking, traveling, eating. But just the fun parts, right? Not the long nights at shitty jobs. That's what the book is for. And that's why the audiobook is great. Um, it's a very it's a relaxing listen. She says it was deeply can he's deeply candid in a similar way to her uncle's. And it concludes, I don't know if it's a generational thing or a cocaine thing, uh, but that's what I like about him. And when he died, it felt like a very distant family member had passed. So, again, these are just like things we don't talk about that Bourdain was like, yeah, I do it. I I did a lot of coke. It's okay. It was New York in the 80s. Like, we had to do work, you know. And that feels very uh, vulnerable in a way you don't get, especially out of like, you know, the TV chefs that he criticizes he used to have a lot of beef he actually calls out emerald lagasse in this book and yeah he does which is hilarious they Uh later went on to reconcile after that they like became friends but he was not a fan of the like andrew zimmer and bizarre foods type people uh Uh or like the yeah emerald rachel ray alton brown like he just was so not into that and that was just starting to blow up as he was you know Mm -hmm. in in, towards the middle of his career
0: yeah it felt like food celebrities were more prominent maybe 10 15 years ago than they are now definitely so i could see him being frustrated by that wave of people it's funny he he, yeah there's like a direct critique of emerald and there's also like a side thing of like before people were on TV saying "bam" and stuff
1: like that, right? <laughs> uh, so there's some cheeky stuff in there too. Always cheeky, and yeah. his critiques and discussion of people doesn't just extend to other like television people. He talks about a lot of other chefs. Um, so the mm-hmm. middle of the book is a lot of different stories about the different restaurants that he worked at, the characters uh, who he doesn't give he gives all nicknames. So one of the big ones is Bigfoot. Uh, who was one of the people who trained him and taught him how to, what being a head chef was like. He talks about Bigfoot being an honest man who was an asshole and would be weird and inappropriate, but also lovable and loyal to a fault. Uh, Uh And people have like figured out who all of these people are at this point. It's not Uh uncommon knowledge, you know, but I love that. I love that. Even though this is his real life, he manages to make it about characters, you know? Yep. And, uh, all the characters are like just people, you know, he's not, he never like glorifies or makes heroes out of the other people in his work or in his career. He's just like, Oh, this guy, let, there's a part, I swear, like middle of the book later in the book where he says one of the best guy, one of my best, um, sous chefs that I ever worked with is the kind of guy that would call us while he was having sex with someone and be like, guys, you'll never guess what I'm doing. Like while we're working, <laughs> it's like, yeah. It is it is a book I find myself blushing at also, especially early on there's uh-huh. like a good amount of sex talk that's like uh-huh. wild. Uh you know, talking about working even when he was washing dishes and being like, yeah, and then like the guy who worked on french fries would like bring girls to the back and you're like, ah, <laughs> the 80s, uh-huh. the 90s. Yeah. Um that brings me though to me of like vivid descriptions of certain things and feelings to Arthur's question. Um, which is fantastic here. He says, my question is Bourdain talks about his first core experiences with food, the vichyssoise, which you mentioned earlier, the raw oyster on the boat. What are your core memories of food in early life and throughout your lives? Let's start with that one before we get to Arthur's other question. Core memories of food in your early life.
0: Um, yeah, I think a couple things. I think for me, the like first the earliest strong memory that i have of a dish that i ate and i was like wow this is like a special cool like there was something about it that was cool and special besides like the things that i liked as a kid and were sort of my comfort foods you know like mashed potatoes or whatever those kinds of things is i remember a time that my dad and I went fishing and we got some trout and we like got the trout and did all that stuff. And then my dad went and grilled it on the grill, like wrapped it up in foil and put some lemon on it. And it was like, it was delicious. Um, And there was just okay. something about that experience of like, in waking up early in the morning to go out and fish and then at the end of the day like eating the thing that you had caught earlier and like understanding everything that went into that experience like in order for this meal to arrive in the form that it did it essentially took an entire day's worth of various tasks and and experiences in order to produce it so i remember that being like a meal that i that stuck with me so i think that's my earliest one probably do you have an answer to that question
1: i can't think of anything much earlier than the first time i went to syria which had some big moments for this um so that would have been when i was 11 years old and Mm -hmm. i didn't know at the time you never really do but how much that my like brain chemistry was being rearranged like we got there to the house, my family's house at like four in the morning. And I've told this story before on various pods, but in s- in front of like the door to the house was uh-huh. uh, a like hanging dead lamb. And again, it's like so late and I'm Whoa. so tired and I'm like, there's a dead lamb in front of me. Like the blood is dripping. This is nuts. And they're like clapping and cheering. My cousins and my uncles and aunts are like, this is so great. We're so happy you guys are here. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Hmm. Uh and then, like, I go clean up and I shower, and they're like, "It's time to eat." I'm like, what? "Eat what?" And I start seeing them cooking, and then just throwing that lamb on the on the grill with like seasonings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was probably the best red meat I've ever had in my life. And I was like, "Oh, like the way my dad cooks in grills is like a like a you know he's it's a different ingredients like that he's using in the states, but it's this right. like this is what he was trying to emulate." And to go back mm. to the source and be like, like you said, this is what it's like to see an animal be slaughtered in front of you. And then to consume it was like huge. And it was so, I I mean, like I try to be an animal rights person, but I, I'm not, it's not one of my main beats, so to speak, but it's mm-hmm. so good. It was so freaking good. And learning about different seasonings. And only recently I've gotten into cooking, but like, I'd say that was my earliest, um, core food memory. Uh, was yeah. trying lamb for the first time right off the right off the bone, so to speak. Arthur has another question which I think will get us into some cool territory here, though. Uh the most common complaint across Bourdain's media is that he rarely describes the taste of a food that he eats. How important is it that uh or not how important is that or not to understand the point? At a certain point, uh-huh. is taste uh-huh. indescribable? Fantastic question.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that question i read that um early in the process of listening to the book and i think that helped me to have kind of a, a lens on how i was approaching this because at the end of the day like i i don't find engaging as a reader descriptions of how things taste yeah which is interesting like i think Descriptions of how things sound or smell or how they look or what they feel like is one thing. But for some reason, taste to me is like a very difficult thing to communicate without taste words, right? It's like trying to describe something's color without calling it red. Uh, Right. And so often i think the most evocative like taste descriptions are really more about other senses like the temperature of the thing or the way that it feels or how it moves on your palate or like what it reminds you of or how it makes you feel or things like that so just from like a prose standpoint i i didn't feel like i was missing descriptions of taste in this book um and then also i think this is a a book that's from the perspective of someone who's making food not necessarily someone who's eating it right like what percentage if you were to really think about it what percentage of a chef's food do they actually eat right there's such a larger volume of food made that a chef is never going to taste. So they the vast majority of their interactions with food. I mean, maybe they'll taste it to like for a quality control reason or something like that, but they're not like sitting down and relishing the meal necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, so much of the way that they engage with food is not about taste at all. It's about like, intuition it's about skill it's about the processes that produce the food it's about knowing if i do these things and put in these inputs i will attain this output that i have like an understanding of i might not be able to viscerally taste what this you know steak is going to taste like but i know based on its color and its texture its temperature the seasonings that i put i can control that taste experience without actually experiencing it myself and so exactly that like attentiveness to process and fixation on process was like something i really enjoyed about the book i loved (laughs) when he talked about the importance of like dish towels and where people would stash their dish towels when a new linen, the like when the linens got washed and the guy who would hide them in the ceiling tiles and things like that, or like the importance of mise en place and, uh, how people would get frustrated if somebody fucks with their station and, uh, those kinds of things. Or when he's getting particular about like how to prepare your garlic and, Don't put the garlic through the crusher thing, because, and it's sort of like thing, it ruins it, (laughs) right? And it's sort of like, on a certain level, how much does it actually ruin it? Like, it's still gonna taste like garlic. There's subtleties there, but at a certain point, it maybe isn't even about taste. It's more about kind of the principle of the way in which you produce certain tastes. So. Um, yeah, for a book where like flavor is conspicuously absent i it wasn't missed at least for me
1: i I felt like I still had it. I feel like I still had descriptions of the food without getting it because ultimately, flavor and like describing food it's a subjective process like we we invent adjectives i I always think of the word unctuous as a modern word that people use to it's like chewy right. And people use it to describe food. And it's like, I understand what you mean when you tell me that a food is unctuous, but it's actually not that useful for me to hear that. I'd rather hear about like, yeah, I prepared in a way that it was like it got a little soft because there was too much smoke in the kitchen, blah, blah, blah. Like the preparation of the food matters as much as the adjectives you use to describe it. And this book is 100% about how you prepare food. Uh I could, I could invent a scenario for you instead of referencing TV and film, because we really can't, uh, of somebody like, you know, I could describe to you what pasta tastes like, and you're like, yeah, that seems pretty good. Or I could tell you that I made it for the love of my life in the middle of Sicily uh, with, like, real ingredients, and I pulled them from here, and I used a, a knife that was handed down mm-hmm. for generations, and mm-hmm. I made pasta for the love of my life. And you're like, that's beautiful. And it's like, it's the mm-hmm. same food, but it's the context that matters. So... I think Kitchen Confidential fully understands that like understanding the condition for you, the reader to understand the conditions that lead to your food being made helps you appreciate your food more.
0: Mm.
1: And that's like the main takeaway, I think from this, not that I'm wrapping up, but like one of the main takeaways from the book is like, yeah, we, we put ourselves through hell so that, that, that food tastes good. It doesn't just taste Mm. good because of magic and salt, you know, it's a lot Mm. of, grinding your your heart and soul against a kitchen for hours and hours and hours and hours until you fail a little less. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's really beautiful. And it's interesting. So you you mentioned that you um you didn't read the whole book, correct? You don't remember where you you left off?
0: Uh yeah, I I listened to the parts that were like his coming of age, essentially, going to the culinary institute. Um kind of proving his mettle in the Provincetown restaurants that he would work at over the summers, and then some of his early experiences being a chef in New York City, and then kind of bouncing around between different places, Um, and then I just got to like a big break that he had that's turning sour now, Yes.
1: so I think I'm like three-fifths of the way through or something like that. I love the part that you're on because you start to learn that Bourdain was like, kind of a good manager, but also kind of like not, he liked firing people. He that was like one of the privileges he wanted to have, as a head chef was like, I should be able to fire people when they're bad, which is like fair. But <laughs> to say like the, I'm leaving because you're not letting me fire people is like an interesting. Well, like, there's a part. Work.
0: There's a part where he leaves like those
1: early chef jobs. He leaves because he was being made to fire too many people. Right, he wants to have choice over it. You know, he wants to like yeah. be able to craft the perfect kitchen. He talks later about like poaching from all the different restaurants he worked at to make new restaurants and how he jumped between a lot like that by being like, "Oh, there was a Dominican guy there who was really good with bread, and I poached him, and then there was like a, you know, Mexican guy who I did this and he was great with a knife, and that's how I made my latest kitchen, which I think is awesome because it's like it's about control. Like part of it is being a control freak and being like, "I know we know how to do this." You know, things inside of the realm of the kitchen work a certain way. Uh And when you Uh break that, you fuck everything up. And the outside world is always fucked up, which, again, leads a a man into some pretty dark parts of his life. He talks about that at the end of the book as well. Um, But I love the the very tale of the book. has two chapters that I love. One is um, advice for future chefs, because he knows that, like, writing about this in such a romantic and cool and exciting way might make some people want to be a chef. And he's like, hey. This is a f- wild job. It's like the, the most misogynist job you're ever going to work. It's the most exhausting, body destroying job you're ever going to work. And I love it. And here's what you, those are things you should be aware of before even attempting it. Don't go into it with an ego. Don't go into it being sensitive, you know, that very like early aughts way of like, it's a man's world. I don't know what to tell you. Like, but he comes at it from a place of like, He's like, I know it's bad that we're misogynist and we talk about our dicks a lot in the kitchen. Like, I'm aware that that's bad, but that is how it works. And if you hate that, like, yeah, you can make change happen, but don't work in a kitchen, you know? Like, it, he's just real. He's just honest in that way that I really appreciate, even though it's it's kind of disheartening to hear, like, if you're not okay with the way that kitchens can be really gross, misogynist kind of cesspools, then, like, don't maybe don't be a chef. Um, He's like super honest about all that stuff. And then the very last chapter is he talks about his first time going to Japan as part of a show uh, that he was filming or as part of it was originally going to be a book. And they decided they turned it into a TV show. This is before any of the ones that were his big break. And just describing the because he had never in all of the the course of this book had never really traveled. You know, he went to France with his parents and that that time and like went with them when he was a kid. But once he was an adult, he kind of like stuck around New York for a long time. And so when he went to Japan for the first time, he was like, whoa, food is, whoa, (laughs) this is amazing. They, like, make food differently. They got this (laughs) figured out in ways that we never even thought of. Like, what are we doing? And you get to hear about his mind opening up wide. And then he's like, you know, if you want to be a chef and it leads to things like this, then that's awesome. Because life is about experiencing new things. Hmm. And that's kind of the note the book ends on. Um, That's cool. It's super cool. Um, I recommend uh, finishing up the book if you have time. Yeah, I, I definitely will. I'm engaged with it. The tale of it is super good. Um, I yeah. I also, for what it's worth, I think I said this earlier, but I list, I, I read the first third of it. And then I audiobooked the second, the back two thirds. So oh. I didn't get to hear him say, I didn't get to hear him pronounce, dun, dun. <laughs> 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 some other topics. In my research, I also found out that Bourdain was just like a really big knife guy you know, he talks early in the book about how he would walk around high school with like a samurai sword and nunchucks or whatever. Yeah. College. Oh my God. I was like, yep. Got it. It's you so funny. It's so funny yeah. that he go grows up to be obsessed with, with chef's knives. There's like a part in the book somewhere where he talks about, like, here's the equipment that you actually need to take care of. If you're mm-hmm. going to be a chef and he's like, get one good knife. Don't buy 17 knives, get one really good knife and you'll be good forever. Get, you know, like X blender or whatever x tools get a yeah. good cast iron, and you will you can do all of the shit at home you know yeah. it's not an expensive thing like we were talking about last week. it's not an expensive hobby to get into if you want to do it as a hobby, yeah. but doing it at a job as a job requires you to kind of like give a- give a part of yourself away, yeah, I talked about the rockstar reputation I talked about Japan, I also just loved yeah hearing about the different kitchens in New York City and like what it was like in the nineties like in the Uh 2000s I thought that was all so interesting different Uh egos clashing with each other and how I think he says this somewhere like it's actually a really small network of people like if you fuck up somewhere by stealing he's like talking about honesty and like oh you call out of work sick because like you were having sex with some girl the night before and like she didn't leave on time then like if you're honest about that your boss will understand but if Uh you steal and lie to your boss then you will never work in this town again which is yeah. like so so interesting, right? It's all it's it's pirates. They they talk about this in other research that I looked up, but you know he read all these adventuring books as a kid, and then he took a job that is as close to being a swashbuckling pirate today as you can really get.
0: Yeah, he has a great line at the beginning of the book where he says he talks about attaining the child's dream of running one's own pirate crew, gotcha. which is such a fun way to describe a kitchen.
1: It's all about camaraderie. And there's a lot of violence and there's different languages being screamed and it's nonstop mm-hmm. and it's exhausting, but it's beautiful what it produces. Yeah. Like the romantic ideal of being a pirate. I think those were my big notes. What were some other things that you wanted to talk about? Um, Yeah, I think kind of on that
0: note, uh, I think that was a lot of the the charm that this book held for me is hearing about the sort of rogues gallery of like, you know, I worked this one job where uh everybody lived in a house halfway house and they all had these were all their different tattoos and uh, this other job where like there was this guy who was the i was the understudy for at the meat station or whatever and i burned myself and he was like look at my hand it's all you want you want a bandage like here i'm gonna touch this hot pan like that stuff (laughs) is really fun i think you know you can't avoid the fact that there's also just like a pervading toxicity to that that is like the book pays lip service to but doesn't really want to criticize because like that is the fantasy of the thing right and that is like the place that anthony bourdain found a home for so long was within that kind of like toxic masculine environment and i think on the one hand i was really charmed by it because like i like adventure stories i like pirates i like um you know we're a crew on a mission and we're gonna accomplish this thing Uh, but also it bummed me out from the perspective of like my dad going through those sorts of experiences and seeing him live within the volatility of the restaurant business and like having a job in one place for a while and feeling like he's doing great work. And then that place goes out of business and now he's got to find somewhere else to work. Um, Seeing him have those sort of like dreamer ideas that Bourdain talks about, about like, the people who dream of starting their own restaurant and like what the menu would be and what they would, how they would set it up. And, you know, every other week you've got an idea about like, Oh, so-and-so had an idea about such and such. And I think I'm going to do that with them. And like, there's a lot about this. That's kind of like, I think difficult to swallow to a certain extent, because it's sad to think that in order to like, do this thing that has so much love in it, like prepare food for people, which requires in order to do it well, I think requires such a devotion and love of craft. But in order to do that, like in the world that we live in, the contexts where you can do that are mired in <laughs> like a work culture that just denies your humanity to a certain extent. And like that's 100%. a really really tough thing. So that was something that it didn't sour my enjoyment of the book, but it's, I think
1: a fact of what's discussed in the book. Right. And again, that's like kind of similar to what we talked about last week. Like what's the work that you're willing to put your time and energy into? How yeah. do you spend your free time? Cause like, I'm sorry, but from this book and from every other like coach chef that I've ever read about or heard about, you just don't get to have a life. You have to accept that, that your life right. is in that kitchen. He was, you know, married multiple. Bourdain was married multiple times, uh, Mm -hmm. and most of them had to accept that I'm just not going to see you much. I'm going to come. You're going to come home when I'm asleep, and you're going to wake up when I'm asleep, and that's going to be our relationship. And I might see you one day a week. And we romanticize people like that as like badasses and cool guys, but it's profoundly sad. And there's, again, it sucks that we're in a strike right now because there's so much good television and film. That covers hmm. this. If you want more, like additional mm-hmm. reading, so to speak, and I'm I'm free to talk about that off pod with people if you're yeah. curious. But yeah, it's it is just it it but like that's why it's so interesting that at the end he's like, hey, did this make you want to become a chef? Question one: Why? Why did I do that? I didn't I didn't plan that. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh-huh. Did it make? What did it make you want to do? Because you mentioned teaching actually in your uh, notes. Um.
0: Yeah, I think it was really interesting to hear him describe the experiences and the the themes and the sort of driving um i don't know like just the 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 animating like uh i don't even know what it is an urge i guess or uh a calling or something um of being a chef because a lot of what he described To me, it was like, oh, that is what it feels like to be a teacher, kind of, Mm -hmm, mm because I think like the similarities that I saw were, you know, teaching a lot like how he's describing kitchens is a place where people who need structure in life can find it. Like he talks about the kitchen as almost a militaristic environment, that kind of provides boundaries and uh yeah and structure for people who may not have that otherwise and i think that that's probably true of a lot of teachers i think there's also this really fun and interesting idea that like there are some wacky characters here who kind of earn their eccentricity by being really competent and like the more capable you are at your thing the more that you're allowed to just be weird uh which is right definitely a teacher thing right I think some some of the strangest people <laughs> that i've met are people who are educators and it's just that they're good enough educators that they can kind of be who they are there's also like that same toxicity i was describing around taking care of yourself and taking a day like the way that he was talking about Well, if you have the sniffles, you you come in. You don't want to let the people down around you. And that's what education feels like. And also this, like, obsession with having moves. The way that he talks about, like, the people at the one restaurant who would always kind of, like, slam the oven door shut with their hip or whatever, or, like, put a little flourish into their chops and just do kind of extra cool little things that, you know, they don't really them. need it's to do to them but it's a demonstration of like i've done this so many times and i have such a uh, an acute knowledge of like the moves that i'm executing that i can put a little english on it and like mm-hmm. teachers do that for sure um like i remember i saw a teacher one time who was uh showing math answers on a on an overhead projector or whatever and uh or like a you know a document camera and he'd frozen the image on the question with no answer next to it and then he did this thing where he faked a sneeze and unfroze the image to show the answer at the same time and it's like Mm -hmm. you didn't need to do that (laughs) you didn't need to pull that move but like you've got that (laughs) little move that you can do um Yeah. And then that same feeling of like, this is a small world, like everybody knows everybody, everybody's trying to poach everybody. Mm -hmm. And then I think the thing that's different is like, you know, I don't think that my colleagues are like doing coke in the back room or like fucking back there or whatever. Um, I think they're doing that stuff on their free time, maybe or maybe not. I don't know. But yeah, that that is like. Obviously, the big difference is some of the more salacious things that he's describing.
1: I'm sure there are some teachers somewhere who are doing that. Right. right. But
0: it's not like, I guess the difference is that if that is happening and you become aware of it, it's not like a part of the piratey texture of what makes the job right. cool. It's like, oh, that's fucked up. Right. That's sort of the, I think, principal difference. But otherwise, a lot of a lot of the feeling of like, we are in this, we're in the mission, like we are shoulder to shoulder. You got to do your part. I got to do my part. And we're going to be real strange while we do it. Like that's that feels like teaching to me.
1: hundred percent. Beautiful. Uh, just like yeah. do, doing the grind. I The closest thing I have is when I had the three years that I worked at the pharmacy. Yeah, um, I was going to
0: ask her about that. I was wondering if. You yeah.
1: I work at a very busy pharmacy for those who don't know. And like one of the busiest in the state. And definitely when it was peak time, I felt like I was, I like, came out of my body a little bit. And like, he talks in this book about like having dreams about it and like how he was so difficult as mm-hmm. a partner because he would be thinking about the next day's menu while oh, like eating his own dinner like with his wife. And mm-hmm. I would have dreams like that where I was like, Oh, I could have optimized this. I could have done this and it's beautiful. And I want, to be able to do work like that in an equitable and well-paying way Mm -hmm. where I can like go into it and then come out of it. And that's why I would never make a good chef is because I want to separate (laughs) my work from my life. And I just can't, but I like know people who've had like a bad couple of years and then they don't want to go back to school. And then they're like, I think I'm going to try cooking. I'm going to just try getting into like restaurant work. I'm going to practice because like he went to Uh CIA, you know, Culinary Institute of America, but like you right. don't have to go to culinary school to learn this stuff. You can. The internet's awesome. Yeah. So really, if you're in a weird part of your life and you're like, I think I'm ready to commit to this, like, it's still there. It's just very different, especially since COVID. There's a lot less of the like tight quarters work like this. Um, the culture of it has changed. The like rampant drug use has changed. It's just really, from what I've heard, like so different. And that's why a lot of people in Bourdain's uh generation. Like, got out and got into other fields. Mm. Um, But I think there's still a reverence from that. Like, I I, binging with Babish often talks about how he's a cook, not a chef, because he's never been as good as any of these people and he's never worked in a kitchen like that before. Uh, Mm. And he, but he idolizes it. He idolizes people like Bourdain because he's like, it's so amazing what you guys were able to do. And I just don't, I just make funny videos for YouTube. (laughs) Like, Mm. that's what a Mm. lot of this culture is now but shout outs to all the the chefs out there including your dad um mm-hmm. i think it's it's wild work and I, I i really i envy the being able to fully invest yourself in it part not the outside of work but like being able to just spend those eight hours like grinding committing is like kind of sick actually yeah because like what do i do i pay invoices and i send emails and i fart <laughs> around for like six hours like <laughs> it just i read this book and i'm like what am i what 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 is my job accomplishing you know i'm not even making something yeah either here or it's
0: there. it's funny listening to the book because it's like when he's describing all of the you know the cool stuff like I went for a summer in provincetown and like did all these drugs and had the sex and cooked the food and it, you're like yeah whoa that's so cool and he's like yeah and then i spent like a couple decades just like fucking depressed and in really precarious situations, and you're like, whatever, whatever, that's fine. I I want
1: your life. He's like, are you sure? <laughs> so I spent the whole chapter at the end of the book being like, hey, are you? Is your brain broken like mine? Because <laughs> yeah,
0: because that there was a lot of time there where it was rough. It was not a fun, fun time. Yeah. Um,
1: but yeah, the rest in peace to Anthony Bourdain. That's the lot, yeah. The other thing I want to I want to just reiterate. Such a fucking cool, great guy. Set the blueprint. I I love I love this book. I think it's beautiful. I think it's really well written and entertaining and engaging. And he wrote a second book as a follow up that I've heard is like really depressing, because so this book kind of stops talking about his life right around when the TV stuff begins to happen, and when he talks about that, mm-hmm. that's where he's like, oh, I love traveling the world. I love doing that, but. I realized I didn't have my, the outlet that I needed anymore, and mm. you take you give some of this outlet for like seminal parts of their lives, their twenties, thirties, forties, and then you take them out of it. Uh oh, that mm. hole needs to be filled, and so that's where I think again, not to like make assumptions, but that's where, I, from my understanding, a lot of his despair came from in later life it was mm. like, how do you get out of a career like this? Yeah, Yeah, and he had a child and had a wife and stuff, but it's like people like to think like, oh, once you have a wife and kids like that becomes your life. And it's like, yeah, but that's not something you can spend 24 hours a day on. You know, it's not not the same way. Well, and I think and I've seen a similar thing with my
0: dad where like, you know, he's in his 60s now and he's had some health stuff and Mm -hmm. been kind of like fucked over a little bit because of that, by his job. And it's, like, this this thing that I could do where I could, like, be on the line, you know, for eight hours straight or whatever, suddenly I can't physically function doing that anymore. And, like, what does it feel like to not have that? Like, I can still cook i can still do this and that i can run a station i could be the pastry guy over here i could wash dishes if that's the thing that needs to be done like i can still be a part of the the thing but i can't like go into battle in the same way Mm -hmm. um so i can definitely understand how when you spend such a long time like kind of wrapping up your identity and defining it around those high intensity moments like that's who i am i feel the most who i am when those things are happening to not be able to access that at the same volume or in the same way must be a pretty difficult thing to do like if i if i i mean when i don't know how much longer i'll be a teacher to be honest with you but if i was like a, a lifer teacher and then i get to an age where it's like i can't really do this anymore i think that mm-hmm. would be i think that would be kind of a troubling situation and i don't know that i know what to do with that
1: well and it's not to say that losing the or, or or leaving the career that you invested so much time and energy into is guaranteed to like make you really depressed it's just right. that you're you you had something and now you don't have that something and in anthony bourdain's case he filled it with Like, the fame that he always promised he never wanted, you know? He was always an awkward dude outside of the kitchen. He never wanted to be a celebrity. And he just ended up being that. He, like, had a Hollywood girlfriend. He got wrapped up in a bunch of controversies. And Uh he became... And he was, like, he had trouble being a father. And it's like, uh, that is, from my reading, the stuff that led to him taking his own life, unfortunately. Uh Which is, like, yeah, when you, again, have the hole in your life that you fill with things that aren't fulfilling and aren't healthy like, celebrity. Nobody nobody does this and then becomes a celebrity. That's a really rough career path. Right. Uh, so I think, like, in someone... To other people who, like, come out of their career, like, that's why we try to change our careers as much as we can while we're still young so that you don't just say, like, oh, from the ages of 8 to 45, I did this one thing and now I don't do it. Because that's why a lot of people, like, when they retire, struggle to find uh, uh, meaning. Right. Your work should not be attached that your work should not define your person, And Bourdain yeah. even talks about that stuff. You know, we were posting clips in the discord from some of his shows where it's like, the dude was clearly an anti-capitalist. The dude clearly understood the idea of like profiting off of repressed underclasses. He worked with those underclasses, those lower class people. Uh, and it sucks, <laughs> you know, living on your work. That's, that's kind of where I land on it. I think. Yeah. Oh, heavy stuff, man. Heavy stuff. Is there um any other big points you want to touch on before we take it home?
0: There was a line that really tickled me, um, where he was talking about his like younger years and he said, My onigan offigan girlfriend spun pizza for a living. I just
1: love Absol- that. Fucking beautiful.
0: I love that. And the other one that tickled me was when he's talking about working in the restaurant where it's like basically run by the mob. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's talking about like how much more efficient things were and how much more willing like food suppliers were to supply him. If he called the right one, sometimes he'd call ones associated with the wrong family or whatever. Um, But he had this line, this line where he says, I had a lot of meetings in cars and he (laughs) describes the one where the guy's talking to him in the car about bread and then goes around to the trunk to like open the trunk and show him some <laughs> bread, bread. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that's just how these guys know how to do business it's so funny it just uh, translates
1: weirdly to other careers yeah you know
0: yeah but anyway
1: those uh, are my uh my favorite lines i think since we talked about hunter s thompson i wanted to conclude with uh a poem well uh again heads up we're talking about self-harm here guys i just need to say mm-hmm. that one more time hunter s thompson also uh committed suicide and his suicide note is a poem that i really love and that i think applies to Bourdain's story a little bit um do you feel comfortable with me reading that on the pod yeah please do so it's real. it's really beautiful um it's called football season is over and this was again hunter s thompson's uh final note that he wrote before taking his life no more games no more bombs No more walking. No more fun. No more swimming. 67. That is 17 years past 50. 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. I'm always bitchy. No fun for anybody. 67. You are getting greedy. Act your old age. Relax. This won't hurt. And it's like uh you know like oh, you yeah. just get to you just get to a certain age and you realize that you are not the person you used to be and that the world has probably moved on past you and that happens at a different age for everybody uh, mm. so yeah just wanted to share that and how i thought mm. about that a lot with this um but let's let's move on yeah let's 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 uh let's attempt to segue out of uh uh, episode, I would say of chats that's a little tonally all over the place. And let's talk about. Um, <laughs> let's bring it back. Let's re-send her, You know, this is mm-hmm. a, this is still a fun book. It's not the. Dep- it's depressing when you know where Bourdain's life. The went. rest of the
0: context, sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah, when you know the rest of the context, but in isolation, *Kitchen Confidential* is a thrilling read. It's so breezy. It's a great audiobook. Uh, and the guy ruled. You know, Bourdain was a really mm-hmm. great person. Say yeah. what you will about him um magellan i need to hand you something it's my pickle you now have oh. a sacred pickle and it's your pickle oh. next week thank you thank
0: you what's inside um so let me let me think here so i uh a couple things are inspiring me here one of them is just playing a lot of Ballersgate gate three one of them is on the picket line um Maybe a week ago or so, various uh like D and D actual play folks, like the folks from Critical Role and Dimension Twenty, went to the WGA SAG picket line to do like like Brendan Lee Mulligan DM'd a like hundred person D and D experience on the picket line. Basically, Oh cool, which is cool. Um, so for our next episode, I haven't decided what specifically, but I'd love to just do like an RPG session where I GM you in something for sure. like an hour. Um sounds kinky. But in a good way yeah. respectful. <laughs> I don't know yet like genre or system. I gotta think about that. If folks have suggestions or if you have preferences, let me know. But yeah, I figured that's like a medium we haven't covered yet, um in our pickles. So, yeah, some kind of tabletop RPG experience where
1: I'm the GM and Alan's the player uh, is what we'll do next time. I'm excited. Chats is tackling the actual play. <laughs> Let's freaking go, gamers. I'm, yeah. yeah. This is the best thing about Chats of a Pickle is getting to just do stuff that I never would have thought we would do uh-huh. like yeah. a few months ago. So, hell yeah. yes, is what I say to that. Can you take it to the plug zone, Meg?
0: Sure. So thank you, of course, as always, for listening to Chats, a television podcast or Chats a podcast right now, Chats in a Pickle. We really appreciate it. Uh, there are a couple of ways that you can get in touch with the show. You can email us at chatspod at gmail dot com with any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, recommendations, pickles, other nouns that might end up in the email inbox. You can also get in touch with us. Uh, by following us and DMing us on X. Uh, we're uh, at Chatspot uh, on
1: X. Just call it Twitter, hey, dude. No one's calling it X. Twitter,
0: Twitter, on Twitter, on Twitter.com slash Twitter slash Chatspot. <laughs> we are Chats Television Podcasts on YouTube where you can find these episodes and also archives of streams that we've done in the past that we'll do in the future those things are on youtube we also have archived streams on our twitch we're chat spot on twitch um, and we you know stream every once in a while so you can mm-hmm. check us out there you can support the show in a couple of ways, you could give us a rating where you listen to the show, uh, or you know, on those YouTube videos, you could like them, you could comment on them, those kinds of things. You can share the show with a friend. You can also support us with money on Patreon at Patreon.com/ChatSpot. One dollar a month and up gets you feeling good, and also gets you on the Discord. a month and up gets you twice monthly bonus content and access to a very large backlog of bonus episodes and $5 a month and up gets you thanked right here at the end of the episode. Okay, here we go. Our $5 a month patrons include Arthur, Emrys, Jen, Justin, Kat, Lee, my mom, Marcus, May Louise, Michael, Noel, Nick and Pat of the Brothers in Infinite War, Six and Stefan. Thank you, folks, for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. You can also support other folks with your money, such as the Entertainment Fund, which we would recommend you do before you support us. Um, You can support our good friend at Camilla who created our podcast art on the socials. And uh, you can also check out some things that we're going to recommend to you. Oh my gosh, I forgot about our other podcasts. You can listen to our other podcasts. You can listen to Alan on the Creature Quorum and Talking Marketing and me on Smash Echoes, Super Smash Echoes. Yeah. We have other podcasts. And I have a newsletter, which is called Not That Magellan on Substack. Okay. Chat some. Alan, do you have one? Can you give it to us?
1: I was going to say, you know, earlier I was like, oh, there's no restaurants from this book that are still open. Uh, the lobster shit what is it called the lobster shack the one that he did The lobster watch- shit no the one that he washed dishes at at the beginning of the book when he first started that's in p-town uh yeah i don't remember the name but i yeah i know what you're talking about the lobster pot that's still open do you want to drive two hours with me across the little bend of massachusetts and go to the lobster pot and see if it's good? uh kind of yeah yeah actually yes. <laughs> <laughs> you might actually be able to take a boat from downtown. I'm seeing lines that you could, like, take a boat. So, I don't want yeah, to drive around. Because okay. it, it's, it's literally at the tip of the... Think about Massachusetts. You have to go down I, and around I, I, the little tip. I always do. To, to, to get to P-Town. But if you could just take a boat from downtown, it would be way easier. So, we'll go to... Yeah. I i don't know how I've ever been. Isn't that, like... A, that's, like, a cool city people hang out in. A big queer population, I think. Hmm. That's not my chat. Oh. Um... My chat is an experience, a video gaming experience that I had last week that I'm going to continue having for the next couple weeks. Um, so I have my friends in the Scanline, Scanline Media community. Uh, earlier this year, I played through Resident Evil 5 with friend of the podcast, Harry, who was on the American Born Chinese episode, which will come back uh, when we can talk about TV again, guys. And... Um, and we liked Resident Evil 5. It's a messy game. It's from 2009. It's janky. It's really racist. It's, But it's fun. I don't know. And Harry said he doesn't want to play Resident Evil 6. And I was like, but I need to. It sounds like the weirdest fucked up B-movie game I've ever seen. And I got another friend, um, Garnet Wager co-host Nick, uh, who I'm going to be seeing in the next couple of weeks, uh, to start a Resident Evil 6 co-op campaign with me. And we started it a couple nights ago. And that game is Bananas. Uh, Alan, I don't want to play the 6th game in a franchise first. Dog, it's fine. It won't make sense to you if you've played all the games. So just have fun with it. It's, it's a zombie shooter, but it's mostly an action game. It's so funny and weird and busted. It's from 2012. The co-op works totally fine. And I love it. And I need to chat some of that experience of playing Resident Evil 6 co-op with a friend. And maybe stream it to your Discord friends like a B-movie. Because that's just, you know, we're all having fun together. It's a community of, of friendship that's my chatsum what is your chatsum good sir really is it the kitchen confidential tv show which is a 13 under 13 mm. starring Bradley Cooper starring Bradley Cooper as Anthony Bourdain
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> starring Ni- oh my God! starring Nicholas Brendan <gasps> wow Oh my god, we well, no, gotta talk, we'll talk, we'll talk, we'll talk, we'll talk. Uh, John we'll Francis talk, Daly, we'll talk, we'll talk. there's so many Chats people in this! We'll, we'll, talk, 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 we'll, we'll talk, 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 we'll talk, we'll
0: talk, we'll talk, we'll talk. Please write that down somewhere, we'll talk. I did, I did. Um, It's so hard to think of anything I've done besides it's not play Baldur's,
1: Baldur's Gate, Gate 3. 3. It's okay, like, chats
0: me. Oh. We I don't think we've Chatsomed Baldur's Gate 3.
1: I think, I is that illegal? We did a whole episode on it.
0: I can I chat some it though, please.
1: Yes, you, I'm gonna call you a sneaky I, man, but yeah, you can do it. Go ahead. You have
0: you what chat some to um, remap before? You probably have, right? I think so. Oh, are
1: we, oh are you listening to are you listening to remap?
0: I am now because they're talking about Boulder's Gate 3 and Starfield.
1: Yeah, 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 which yeah. I haven't play downloaded.
0: I downloaded Starfield, but I haven't played
1: it. Oh, Game Pass. I was like, you bought Starfield? You're game Pass, that. Game Pass, Game Pass.
0: So I can't chat some it because uh i haven't played it but uh yeah i'm just gonna chat some baldur's gate 3 i've also listened to coverage on the besties and remap radio those are great video game podcasts if you want to hear people talk about video games uh okay i'll do i'll do this now never mind yeah those, i haven't those chatted
1: on remap radio
0: okay so
1: you- great your I'm gonna Chatsons steal the remap radio. Go
0: ahead. I'm gonna steal a real life recommendation from Alan and make it my chatsum, <laughs> which is remap radio, which is the revival, the new iteration of a podcast from the folks who originally did uh, freaking what was it called? The other thing.
1: I'm not gonna tell you. I want you to figure it out. Waypoint radio. <sighs>
0: Something waypoint. Thank you, Waypoint radio. Um, and it's great. They talk about some video games I haven't heard of before and sometimes I don't listen super closely to those parts but it sounds like they're saying smart things. And when they talk <laughs> about a game that I'm interested in or that I have heard of, they really do say very smart things and I yes. like it. And they had some good Starfield coverage and some good Baldur's Gate coverage. So, check it out.
1: Definitely. Definitely. I'm excited to hear you talk about Starfield eventually. I didn't I didn't it didn't register in my mind that that's a game that you could play. Oh, but I I'd can. But you'd have to put Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate down to do it, which
0: impossible, impossible to put Baldur's Gate down. I'm like excitedly replaying parts of the beginning of Baldur's Gate. I can't think of any time that I've ever done that with an RPG. Like, oh my god, that was that ten hours was so fun. I want to do it again with a slightly different character. That's a that's a new experience for me. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. anyway. That was my very long non Chatsum that turned into a Chatsum.
1: You got there. That's what matters. Yeah. Is that it? Did Chats just become the News race King? <laughs> yeah. I think we're
0: done. Yeah. yeah, we got to go to LSU real quick.
1: Heard Chef. Heard Chef. All that. Heard Chef. Herd chef. Herd, Herd chef. Uh, behind... behind. There, yeah. is, a, there oh, is a part sorry. where Bourdain goes down all the terminology, which is fun. Oh, okay. I got to keep listening so I can use this. Yeah, he, he's like, here's all the words that people use and what they mean. Thank you for being the cooking knife to my Anthony Bourdain, because I oh. can't live without you. Oh. And thank you guys so, so much for listening to Chats and a Pickle. Bye!